you take your Bible, please, to the book of Amos. Daniel and Hosea are just before Amos. I often uh, start Saturday mornings without any idea what my text for youth group that night will be. It's just the way the Lord keeps me um, on a short leash, I suppose. Um, But yesterday morning I had two that I had to pray over. I didn't have the messages, but I had the texts um, and uh, worked out with the Lord what uh, it would be that I uh, would be preaching last night for youth group. And I was wondering what the other one uh, was for. And uh, in the afternoon, the pastor gave me a call and then it became apparent that after youth group last night, uh, I would be looking at Amos chapter 5 to see what our message would be for this evening. So uh, here we are in Amos chapter 5. If you've gotten as far as Micah, unless you're Sarah, uh, you've gone too far, you need to come back a couple of books of the Bible. Amos chapter 5. We'll just read uh, one verse to begin with to introduce uh, our uh, passage this evening. And uh, it's verse 18. Amos chapter 5 and verse 18 says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Israel are anticipating the Messiah's uh, return Uh, as being the beginning of the end or literally the end of their problems. And the Messiah's return, uh, they were seeing as they would never have to worry about their enemies again, nor would they have to plant crops, nothing. They'd never have to do anything again because the Messiah was coming and so they were hoping for the Messiah's return, the day of the Lord. God says that indeed the day of the Lord is not a day to be looking forward to from Israel's perspective. It is a day that will bring darkness and not light. And then, uh, in some ways comically, verse 19, he fleshes out uh, how wrong Israel are. He he says that uh, it would be like running from a lion and then having your head bitten off by a bear. Or, or not having your head bitten off by a bear, but getting to a, a house of some kind and, and getting in and closing the door and catching your breath on the wall and getting bitten by a snake. Or running down George Street uh, for the bus and, and jumping on it just as the doors close and then finding that it turns right instead of left and you're on your way to Kensington or, or somewhere uh, in the eastern suburbs instead of coming uh, out uh, this way where, where we all uh, live. It's that kind of a thing that you, you think you're escaping from something but actually the escape leads to something that's far worse, like going to Kensington. Um, so whether it's a, a bear instead of a lion or a, 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 a viper, uh, no, sorry, a serpent instead of a, a lion, 
uh, Israel's view of the day of the Lord being their escape would be something like this. Why would there be no light? Why would it be a day of darkness? Because for Israel, the day of the Lord is one of great woe, as the verse begins, verse 18 begins, and then following that woe, judgment. And therefore not a day of light. Let's pause for a moment of prayer and then we'll look at this passage more. Father, we love you and thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that you would take your word and pray that you would give insight into it and as seek to apply it to each of our lives, Lord. I pray that you'd be honoured and glorified as we choose to take your word. Father, I pray for each of our missionaries this evening as they gather around the world. Lord, may your word be expounded to those believers that gather with them. And Lord, we pray that the unsaved that would join them would be challenged by the truth of the gospel, we pray. Bless our service this evening. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Well, this morning, Missionary Harrington uh, gave an excellent biblical proof of a, a pre-tribulation catching away, uh, a, a, the rapture of believers. Uh, but... That's just the believers that get taken. It's just those that have placed their faith in Christ for salvation that get caught away. Those that don't get raptured, those that haven't placed their faith in Christ, go into a seven-year period of, of woe and judgment and at the end of that, Christ returns visibly. Missionary Harrington looked predominantly at at the first part of a two-part return of Christ. Uh, the first part being his return for the believers. And though that's not our main theme tonight, it is uh, an important uh, thing uh, that I think the Lord has, has purposely put these two messages together because as I was uh, beginning to look at this passage last night, I thought, well, it's, it's that statement there in, in verse 18, the day of the Lord, that's a big topic to go off into. And so fortunately someone else preached uh, from the Christian's perspective at least on, on that uh, this morning. The phrase the day of the Lord re- refers to uh, the time period following the church age. From the rapture of Christians and the continuing on of the remainder into a seven year period and then Christ's visible return, and then following that, the millennium period. It's important too because there are some churches near here that used to believe as we do and no longer do. The church in Newcastle, for example, they uh, have become quite evangelical as to the fact that They don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. They believe in a 
post-tribulation rapture of the saints. And as we saw this morning from the preaching of God's Word, that is uh, clearly not a biblical position. They are confusing the day of the Lord from the Christian's perspective with the day of the Lord of Israel's perspective. This is Israel's perspective, this passage here. Their perspective of the day of the Lord is a day of darkness. For the Christian, the day of the Lord is not a day of darkness. For the believer, it is a day of light because from that moment of the rapture, we enter the day of the Lord. And as we heard this morning, there will be no judgment in terms of the judgments that are described uh, happening on earth. Here, we escape that. That will be a day of light. And it's important that we don't uh, confuse the two, that we don't mix Israel and the church in our interpretation. There's no uh, one event that takes place more than twice, though there are two parts to, to Christ's return. Christ returns at the rapture to the air. At the end of the tribulation, he returns visibly to the earth. At the beginning of the tribulation, he returns for the Christian. At the end, he returns and deals with those that have survived the tribulation. And their continued uh, either uh, rejection of Christ or those few believers that will have survived all of the atrocities of the Antichrist and, and so forth. That those that have gotten saved during the tribulation, I should point out. But the differences, though they are subtle, they are pronounced. And if we carefully compare Scripture with Scripture, uh, there is no doubt that it's a pre-tribulation rapture and that this passage where it says the day of the Lord uh, is referring to from Israel's perspective. But for you, uh, Christian, this evening, the lesson is this. It may look like the end times that we live in. These guys were hoping for the end times so they could escape their problems. And for you and I, the end times, it might look like the end times. But if we're just hoping for the rapture to come, which is imminent, as God's Word tells us it is, and as we heard explained this morning, as we saw in Scripture, but if we're just like the Jew of this day, we're hoping for the rapture so we can get out of here and stop having to deal with all the problems that we have to deal with, then how, how do we compare to these, these ones? They just wanted their enemies to stop knocking on the door. And if we just want the rapture to come so that our problems are taken care of, then we are just lazy. We're just selfish. We are just disobedient because there are people 
around us that at that point of the rapture will not get raptured and will enter a tribulation period. And they've got seven years. And you won't be there to tell them about Christ. At that point of rapture, you will never have a time to witness for Christ ever again. And if you and I are hoping for the rapture to come soon, and it is a biblical position, even so come Lord Jesus, yes, we're hoping for that. But if we're hoping for that, not so that He can be fully manifest before us and our glory, His glory be manifest before us so that we can really understand how marvellous our Lord and Saviour is. If, if instead we're just wanting to deal with getting out of stuff, then we're just a lazy Christian, self-centred Christian. Because there's people around us that need to hear of Christ before He returns. And you'll never have a chance to tell them ever again. If you believe that the rapture is imminent, you've got between now and whenever that is to tell that person you're thinking about right now their need of Christ that one that you know no one else has told them and that perhaps you're the only one that can. How different are you than these Jews trying to escape problems? It's selfishness. It's disobedient because Christ said that He would be with us even to the end of Matthew 28, even to the end of the world. His power would be with us to be a witness until the end. But after that, there's no one to lead to Christ in heaven, my friend. There's no intruders. We only have now. So our passage begins with the Jews selfishly just wanting a way out. But as we see in verse 19, they'll just be escaping one problem to get another problem when it comes for them. Now for them, the day of the Lord isn't imminent. It's imminent plus seven years, if if you like. They're literal darkest day. But, but for you and I, if we know Christ as Saviour, we will step into eternity at that moment of, of the rapture. But we'll never have a chance to witness for Christ again. Now as our passage continues, verse 21, the Lord goes on to say, I hate and despise your feast days. And I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. The Lord gives now five uh, statements 
of His displeasure. Five statements of His displeasure with Israel. He says, I hate and I despise your feasts. He says, I will not smell your assemblies. He says, I will not accept your offerings and I will not regard your offerings. Five statements of his displeasure with Israel. And it's these that caused God to make the shocking statement in verse 23. Take away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. And it was that that jumped out at me earlier this week. The noise of thy songs. Five statements about their worship. And God's displeasure of it. But then he says, the noise of thy songs, take it away. It's like when the neighbour's two-year-olds just started learning the recorder. And, and you're like, take it away. It's, our children are always uh, experts um, at the recorder straight away, but the neighbour's children, shocking. We, we long for the day that we can sing again together that we can literally lift our voices together um, in song. This morning I got caught out twice. First line of the first and third song. I went for it. Um, Just, we want to lift our voices in song and yet we can, we can, if we choose to worship God through thinking about and reading these. Uh, and, and though we, we want to be able to make a sound, sometimes, especially the musicians, get too caught up in the quality of the sound rather than the quality of the worship. And this, isn't, this point isn't on that. And yet, uh, we, we should be careful that, that it's not the sound that is the be-all and end-all. It's the worship of the sound. The worship that is coming from our hearts as we sing or as we play, as we meditate upon, uh, because we can't sing, as we meditate upon the, the words. But because Israel were going through the motions, as we see in verse 21 and 22, God says, take away from me. Take away the noise of your song. It's because of those going through the motions and what's mentioned in verse 26 uh, about their idolatrous behaviour that God calls their song noise. Noise. I looked up that word noise. It describes... uh, Two aspects of sound, that of a crowd and that of uh, showers of water. Not you having a shower and singing in the shower, but showers of water like a waterfall. 
the sound of a crowd is just nondescript noise. Clearly noise, but there's, there's nothing really standing out unless they're all chanting the same thing, obviously. But not allowed to do that during COVID. And then um, showers of water. We were um, bushwalking on Friday, the boys and I, and we actually just bush bashing most of it. We decided this route would be more interesting than the path. Um, And we came across uh, a ridge and and came around a corner and suddenly we could hear a waterfall. We knew there was a a creek down below us and so in theory there's going to be a waterfall somewhere. But suddenly, as we came around the corner, we could hear a a waterfall in the creek uh, below us somewhere. but, But the waterfall, as we got closer, a waterfall blankets out other noises. It's a particular sound that the bird calls aren't, aren't what stand out anymore. It's, it's the, just the, the loud noise of this beautiful, peaceful noise, but loud noise of, of water. In this case, their worship, their song was described as as that of a crowd or not tranquil, tranquil water perhaps, just sound that just blanketed out and was nondescript and, and God took no pleasure in it because they're going through the motions and because of their idolatrous heart. And here we find God not accepting something that's offered to him in worship. They're worshipping in their language. Oh, they're doing the sacrifices and they're singing the songs and we're offering, we're worshipping God. And yet God says, you might be offering that to me as worship, but take it away. It's noise. Here's God rejecting something offered to him as worship. As I thought about that, brethren, you can't just offer anything to God and call it worship. Not just anything can be called worship. Not just any sound, not just any motion, not just any ritual and call it worship. Here God is saying, I'm going to choose. Which means that my presence here this evening, your presence here this evening, is not automatically worship. Your time of prayer tomorrow might not be worship. You giving your offerings as we worship the Lord with our tithes and offerings, you giving it at a point in time one day might not be worship. Not because you're not giving your tithe, but because something else is out of place. God desires your worship. God desires our worship. And yet He does not need it. He is 
almighty God, whether you and I worship Him or not. Our worship does not make God more almighty than He is already. He is holy. He is almighty. He is God. And our worship does not change that. That does not mean we should not worship, but our worship doesn't make Him any more because He already is. It is our privilege to worship. It is our privilege to come to Him and offer Him worship. But it should be on His terms, not ours. That being in church is an opportunity to worship, but being in church is not worship. And it's my privilege to come to Him and worship Him with you at a given service. But if my heart is not right before God, my heart motivation in being here, or my thoughts, or my motives in being here are not what they ought to be, then my presence isn't worship. Now, it won't affect necessarily you worshipping God, but me just being here isn't automatically worship. You just being here isn't automatically worship. God is God. And it's our privilege to come to Him and worship Him, but we must do it on His terms, in His ways, with the right motivation, with the right intention. And so the onus is on us when, there's, when we want to be at a place that we worship, whether it's on the couch tomorrow morning for our time of prayer, whether it's next Wednesday night together for communal prayer, whether it's next Sunday morning meditating on the words or giving our offering or responding to God's word. Any of these times, it's, the onus is on us to be, have the right heart motivation, the right intention that I'm not here to be seen. I'm not singing or meditating on these words because it looks spiritual. I'm doing it because it's my privilege, it's our privilege to know, get to know, know further Almighty God and worship Him. And it's our privilege to do that together in a corporate service and it's our privilege to do that separately during the week, repeatedly. And it's our loss when we go through the motions. It's our loss when we don't. We don't even go through the motions. It's our loss when we go through the motions and our intention is fully on something else. How different is that from Israel's idolatry in verse uh, 26? It's just the same. 
but ye have borne the tabernacle. Verse 25 refers to the wilderness of 40 years, but ye have borne the tabernacle of your Molech. I thought they were carrying around the God's tabernacle, weren't they? In title, but in their hearts, they were worshipping Molech and Chion, your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. Whether they were physically carrying it or carrying it in their hearts and minds, they were carrying it with them. And we can carry our, our idols into this place at any given time. We can leave them behind and repent of them and bring them back out of the cupboard, all just sitting here in the pew. See, it's our heart, our motives, our reflections that determine whether, like at the end of the passage, we're reflecting on idols or whether we're reflecting on God. But I don't think you and I need to worry about our worship. What I think we need to do is to be honest with ourselves. We need to be neither liberal in our generosity to ourselves in denying that no, no, I'm not. I'm not going through the motions. And we also need to be not overly judgmental of ourselves and being harsh on ourselves. If, if we just have our, our motivations right, we're worshipping the Lord. If we're not forming idols, our worship will be fine. And yet just because we tell ourselves we're worshipping, as this passage tells us, we aren't just automatically worshipping. Can I close with one final passage? Go to Philippians chapter 4. See, God says, Take away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 15. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the Gospel... When I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. When I wrote to Brother Keish and said, if you've got any prayer requests uh, for us to share next Wednesday night, which was last Wednesday night, it, it was this principle 
in verse 17. He was glad that, that we could partner together with him. This idea of fruit that may abound to your account. That was what made him glad. Not the fact that it not just represented prayers, but financial support. It was the partnering that encouraged and excited him. But the passage goes on to say, But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odour of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. See, God said to Israel, take away these, the noise, not the melody, but the noise of your song. And the Philippian church had sent Paul a gift, almost certainly from the context a financial gift, and yet figuratively it's described here as a sweet smell, there in verse 18. It wasn't perfume. He's a Roman man. It's not perfume. But it was a gift and it's described figuratively as being like a sweet smell or, uh, to put it in the context of, of the previous passage, it could be a beautiful sound, a beautiful melody offered up to God. And I see a connection between these two otherwise disparate thoughts. That of not seeking and or longing to escape for our trials and this world in a rapture and not offering the Lord our worship. Our worship that's lacking melody or a sweet smell. And the connection is this. If we are selfish and so focused on ourselves that we're not reaching out to those around us, when we come into this place or we're having our time at home on the sofa or wherever you have your quiet time, your time of prayer, if we're so self Centered and so self-focused that we're not reaching out to those around us. When we come together for corporate worship or whether we're pretending to worship by ourselves, we're going to be so self-centered and self-focused that we won't be worshipping God. That's the connection I see between these two thoughts. But if I'm reaching out to those around me because I know that the rapture is imminent, and they will otherwise never hear the Gospel. And I'll never have an opportunity to tell them of a Saviour that has died for their sins. If I'm focused on their needs rather than mine, when it comes time for worship, my heart will be in the right place. Because I won't be used to focusing on myself. I'll be able to focus on in worship my Lord and His glory and His majesty rather than how lucky God is that I am here worshipping Him. Are we reaching out to those around us 
is our worship an offering that is acceptable to the Lord. Let's bow in prayer.